0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Jack Ashby from the Grant Museum of Zoology, and I'm here to welcome you as chair of the UCL Lunch Hour Lecture Committee to today's event. Uh, Andrew, Levins, Andrew Nevins sorry, is Professor of Linguistics at the UCL Division of Psychology and Language Science, where he directs the Laboratory for Language and Speech Diversions, or LLSD, um, which researches some, some very real-world questions uh, around slips of the ear, child language acquisition, whistled languages, and according to their website, uh, the ability to speak foreign languages under the influence of alcohol, which equips uh, Professor Nevins very capably to give today's lecture. If you could join me in welcoming Professor Andrew
1: Nevins. Thanks, everyone. I think it's good to uh, start any Tuesday afternoon by listening to a little ABBA. Many people report hearing, in the end of that song, When I Called You Last Night from Tesco. <laughs> Let's hear it again.
0: I was sick and tired of everything When I called you last night from yes, yes. Do
1: you hear that? Now, one of the reasons we want to think is, why does that happen? What's special about the words Glasgow and Tesco that makes them similar? One of the things, of course, is that the vowel a and e are very similar. And indeed, some of you who may have met speakers who don't have the a and e difference in their language may notice that words like bad and bed are easily confusable. Another is that sequences like ska and ga in Glasgow and Tesco are very similar sequences. Finally, we might be interpreting and putting onto the song what's actually on our minds, shopping to do, Tesco, plays a role in the song. So many song lyrics can be misheard, arguably, for a number of reasons. Now, we might think this is an artifact of hearing things that are sung in falsetto. This happens a lot because people are singing. Things are not always unclear because there are musical demands on the articulation of the sounds. There's background music with drums and bass. And all of that obscures the message so that this is more likely to happen, let's say, when we're listening to songs than when we're having conversational interchanges, and maybe misperceptions are not as common in those cases. Those slips of the ear that happen in songs are called mondegreens. That's the technical name for these, and that comes from a columnist by the name of Sylvia Wright, who wrote about her experience as a child hearing the poem The Bonnie Earl of Moray, which ends, they have slain the Earl of Moray and laid him on the green. And what she heard there was Lady Mondegreen. They've slain the Earl of Moray, and another victim, Lady Mondegreen. <laughs> Very sort of plausible, because Lady Green, that H might not be pronounced, M. On the green, the TH of the might be pronounced as da. Lady Mondegreen, Lady Mondegreen. But what's interesting about this case is that a sequence of five words has become a sequence of two words. So what's changed in this case is not only a th to a d and an h disappearing and so forth, but the actual sequence has changed from something which is five words to something which is two words. In other words, what has been substituted here is not only the identity of individual sounds, the substituted by duh, but the place where the white space goes between the words. White spaces, if you like, have been added and deleted from the phrase in just as the same ways, perhaps as complex as the individual sounds themselves have been added and subtracted. And this is the result of a very complex process. This involves, as I've just mentioned to you, the phonetics of the fact that a duh sounds like a the, that the H and M is not pronounced, that Laid him on the green might be an odd phrase for somebody to hear. When you're talking about slaying, usually you don't talk about the immediate consequences of where the person is placed afterwards. All of these factors play a role in what we expect to hear, what's most plausible, and indeed, in this case, some rules that are specific to dialects of English. So the fact that laid him on the green, many dialects of English don't pronounce the H in him there, plays a role. Greens are this whole, there are many collections around that look at misheard song lyrics. But actually, I want to convince you that this confusion of where the one word begins and another word ends, word edges, which I've just sort of played with there by moving the white space, right? I've taken the phrase word edges and made it word edges. Now, that doesn't mean anything. But the result of moving white space and ending up with two phrases that are very similar yields what may be called oronyms. Now, many of you have heard of homonyms, words like, let's say, bear and bear, b-a-r-e, and b-e-a-r, that were not always pronounced the same in the history of English, but are pronounced the same now. Oronyms are such things on the phrasal level, two phrases that, depending on where you place or don't put the white space, may be pronounced the same. And here's a famous example in conversation From British comedy series The Two Ronnies. Four candles. Four candles. There you are. Four candles. No, four candles. Well, there you are, four candles. No, four candles. (laughs) Candles for forks. The customer there was asking for fork handles. Handles for forks, but given dialects of English where the H in a word like handles is not always pronounced, it may be pronounced as handles, fork handles, and fork handles are oronyms, two different phrases that have the exact same pronunciation on the surface, even though they may be entirely different linguistic objects. These are oronyms, and these are some of the most common sources of slips of the ear. Sometimes, as you may know, in a, ha- in a hardware store, asking specifically for fork handles, I mean, how often do you interchange the tines on different forks, right, is not such a plausible thing to ask for. And so what this example shows is that it's in a certain case, an ambiguous phonetic signal proposes, it gives two or more options, and the listener disposes, chooses which one he or her would prefer to hear. These slips of the ear, then, are somewhat like Freud's slips of the tongue. Freud's slips of the tongue are often thought to be a case where the speaker, by making a certain error, is unconsciously revealing what he or her really wishes to say. And in these cases, slips of the ear, the listener is revealing, in some cases, what he or her prefers to or expects to hear. Now, let's do a little experiment here and see whether your ears can play tricks on you. I'm going to go into a different program now. And many of you have been given a sheet of paper, I think, where you're supposed to you know, rate how much fun you had or something like that today. I want you to use the back of that piece of paper to do something much more important. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm, we're going to go into another program here. And this is me just saying the word "skull." OK, that, I mean, skull. S-K-O-L. I, I don't know, maybe that's the word for toast in some language. Okay. Skull. Everyone heard that? Skull. Yeah? Skull. No tricks so far. Okay, now what I'm going to do is just play those pieces separately. Sk- 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 okay? Sk- sk- That's the sk- 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 Now write down what you hear. Goal. Goal. Go on, write down what you hear. Goal. How many of you heard the fuel source coal? How many of you heard the word goal? Many more of you, yeah? So that's interesting because let me play those two parts again. Sk- 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 goal, goal, goal. Now let's put them together. Skull. You hear skull. So somehow, this is more than the sum of its parts. S and goal are becoming skull. or actually, what's really happening is skull minus S is becoming goal. Now, why does this happen? This happens because we often don't hear sounds like that initial K in skull out of context. And one of the things that's quite unique about English is that when we pronounce a word like coal, We've got that puff of air there. Probably the microphone men have told me to avoid popping my Ks and saying things like puff and coal. But the coal, that puff of air, which is called aspiration in English, happens at the beginnings of words and doesn't happen after Ss. So we wouldn't say sky or skull, but we would say coal and chi or something like that. So when we take the S off of a word like skull, we suddenly have an unknown object an unaspirated K, something which doesn't naturally occur in the wild at the beginnings of words unless you've done digital manipulations on it. And rather than hearing some strange category there, many of you said you heard goal. You didn't say, I heard coal or I heard goal or I heard something that was kind of in the middle, I'm not sure. Your mind persistently decided to make sense of that percept. So this specific one, this very specific case of what happens—the effect of an S on sounds like ka, pa, and ta that follow it, making them sound more like ga, ba, and da—combined with this oronym property, the fact that the white space in words is not always clearly delineated in speech, and we may make substitutions, putting the white space in the wrong place leads to one of the most famous slips of the year of all time.
0: Excuse me while I kiss
1: now, some of you may not know what those folks up there are guffawing about, but what they're laughing about is the fact that Jimi Hendrix there was saying, excuse me while I kiss the sky, not a very kissable object, and many people ended up hearing, excuse me, while I kiss this guy. I'll play it for you one more time. And in fact, now that you've heard it this way, it may be very hard to ever undo again. <laughs> Sorry if I ruined your favorite song. Excuse me while I kiss this guy. So this example involves the two ingredients we've already just looked at. One is that the word boundary has moved here, so that an S has migrated to the the rather than being grouped with the chi. And the other is, once we've moved the s over, a chi all alone sounds like a guy, just like skull minus s sounds like goal. So we have reasons to understand why these slips of the ear occur. And in fact, orthographic spaces are a luxury. As we know, ancient scripts did not often write spaces between words for the simple reason that lambskin was very expensive, right? And so it was a waste of space. In the spoken signal, we don't have white space. And so this represents here, this is an ambiguous, when your ear sees this, if you will, this is a representation of what your ear sees. A distribution of energy at different frequencies from, zero, from about 20 to 20,000 what we hear across time. This is a spectrogram. And this is a representation of what your ear sees. This specific representation is ambiguous between euthanasia and euthanasia. Okay? Your ear sees two different things here. And this is the same as the rabbit-duck illusion. The rabbit-duck illusion, some of you may see a rabbit, some of you may see a duck. Interestingly, you cannot ever see both at the same time. But this is what our eyes see, and we're all familiar with the concept of optical illusions based on the fact that this is an ambiguous visual percept. The spectrogram that I showed you before is an ambiguous auditory percept. Your ear is seeing, if you will, exactly the same type of thing that your eyes see in this case, and has to choose euthanasia. Which one? And I don't know if you're biased by being a rabbit lover or a duck lover or maybe you look more to the left at the beginning, maybe you look more to the right, maybe the eye is more, you know, but this is a very well-done illusion, of course. And in human language, we have numerous, numerous, numerous such cases. This illustrates the fact that slips of the ear are part of a broader area called cognitive science where we look at how perception works and how it interfaces with all of our different sensory apparatus and also with our cognitive expectations. And something which is called streams and counter streams is about the fact that in perception we have a big convergence between what are called top-down processes. For example, suppose that uh, you know what your Aunt Bertha looks like. You know that your Aunt Bertha has dimples of a particular way. You know that your Aunt Bertha has a particular kind of eyebrows. All of the pieces, when you combine them, generate Aunt Bertha's face. Then you walk into the men's room, and Aunt Bertha is there. You might not even recognize her at first blush because you're not expecting to see Aunt Bertha in the men's room. right? This is a case where your top-down expectations override the bottom-up Information that says, ah, well, I know each piece. I know the eyes. I know the dimples. I know the, put them together Wait. for a split second. But uh, is that really Aunt Bertha here? The top-down expectations, what you expect to see, what's frequent, what's plausible, what makes sense, sometimes has to interfere and converge with the bottom-up information about the individual pieces, eyebrows, dimples, consonants, vowels, that holistically make a percept. And they often meet somewhere in the middle. And that's the very notion of streams and counter streams that play a role in visual perception. Let me give you an example from my own life. A few weeks after my son was born, it was a very snowy evening, and I called up a place and I said, Hi, do you do infant passport photos? And they said, Yes, we do. I drove there in the snow, and I'll bring my baby in the snow, go to the And the guy says, I've never taken a picture of a baby before. I said, but I called. And then I asked, did you do infant passport photos? He said, oh, if that was you. I thought you asked if we do instant passport photos. <laughs> right, well, anyway, he made do, right? But the point is that these two words were phonetically close enough, instant and infant, because the sounds s and f are very close to each other. But it also involved not only those two sounds and those two phrases being close to each other in a bottom-up way but his expectations. He maybe had expected to hear instant passport photos. And so we found the convergence of these two factors. And so what we've been doing in our research is collecting lots and lots and lots of examples of this type. We now have collected 4,000 such examples from conversation. And with your help today, we'll have many more soon. And we've been looking at what happens. And one of the first things we found that was a very striking result is that if you look at how frequent, let's say, what was intended, let's say, infant passport photos, and what was actually perceived, instant passport photos, overall, what was actually perceived is not more likely, not more frequent, as measured by a corpus of English. And what words are common? Like in Google, you say, how many hits would you have for instant passport photos versus infant? And you see which one is sort of more frequent in the world. And we found that, believe it or not, there's no overall effect of going in the direction of the more frequent. It very often happens, and that would be, as you'd say, a top-down effect, but that's balanced out by the bottom-up effects as well. Now one of the things we've been looking at are what are some of the places and types of sounds that are most susceptible. After all, given the fact that conversation happens in such a way that we want to Be cooperative, be informative, be relevant. You might expect that natural language conversations are such a mess. What kind of patterns are we to actually find? Well, of course, these things happen very often with proper names. Yeah, a proper name you may not know. Of course, you might mishear as something else. Or idioms that you're not familiar with, other colloquialisms. In a noisy atmosphere like a pub, in a noisy channel like a cell phone that does not transmit ss and very well. You might get more slips of the ear. Unstressed syllables are particularly susceptible. So a phrase, this is one of our examples, she's adopted was misheard as she's a doctor. One of the reasons that this happens as well is because we often are familiar in English with words starting with a stressed syllable. So you hear adopted, And you think, ah, the beginning of the word, the white space, must be before the stressed syllable, must be before the adopted. But wait, adopted's not a word. Maybe I heard doctor. That's the kind of causal inference chain that goes on at a daily basis in order for this to happen. And this example shows something else, which is that consonants that come before other consonants are particularly fragile. So some of you may know that from words like octopus, the word for eight in Latin used to be octo. But you probably know that in modern Italian, it's something like otto. That K has vanished. That K has lost its identity. And it's interesting that it was that K and not the T. The reason is that K is before another consonant, not before a vowel. Consonants are particularly susceptible when they come before other consonants rather than other vowels. These are the kinds of things we're able to discover by looking at our corpus, as well as looking at how these might relate to historical change. And so just briefly to show you the kind of consonant matters in a very systematic way. Consonants like pa, ta, ka are more often replaced in our database than fa and sh, which in turn are more often replaced than na and ma, which in turn are more often than la and ra, which in turn ya and wa. So as you go from left to right, you get to more vowel-like sounds, and these vowel-like sounds are more robust, and these noisy consonant sounds like are more fragile. That's one of the things we've been able to discover by looking at a very large database of when these happen. Now, many of these other cases are related to the fact that English is being spoken by many, many, many different people, all of whom have different dialect rules. And sometimes when you have certain pronunciation rules in your dialect that I don't have in mind and I don't know how to undo those rules, these can lead to lots of such cases. For example, British and American English differ in that in British English, this phrase on the top is pronounced uh, neurologist. But American English, that's neurologist. This is the famous difference between Tuesday and Tuesday. One of the examples in our corpus reflects someone saying he's a neurologist and the other person hearing he's an urologist because there would be no source for that ya sound otherwise in that speaker's dialect. Let me give you another example. There are what are called non-rhotic varieties of English, ones that drop their r's. In a non-rhotic variety of English, someone said he scored a goal and his interlocutor heard he's caught a goal the SK thing that we would seen before, coupled with not knowing that Rs can be dropped in this dialect led to this specific misperception. Another example, an Australian went to um, Arizona and said, where can I find a bison? And his interlocutor said, well, they're not so common around here these days. That's because of the specific vowel difference that occurs in Australian English. And finally, American English, as you may know, has this property called flapping, whereby T's are pronounced as R-like sounds. And so, someone may ask in Scotland, for example, for a bottle of wine, and that sounds a lot in local Scottish dialect like a bottle of wine, a whole barrel, a lot to be asking for. Now, it's interesting to know when and how these slips are detected, but you see all of these cases come from different languages having very different rules of pronunciation. And when these come into clash, undoing the results, can lead to a misperception. This, of course, though, is not restricted to English, as many of you may be aware. And in fact, the first scientific study of slips of the year was by Rudolf Meringer, who was one of Freud's contemporaries and, actually, rivals in Vienna. And he reports in a noisy beer hall, ordering a backhühn and being delivered a Brathun, you know, and he got the wrong kind of chicken. Okay? So this was a very early study where he systematically tried to Catalog waitresses' misperceptions and noise and their and their results. And currently, one of the PhD students in our department is studying how slips of the year happen in Chinese, where things are very different because of the effect of tones. Tones determine the meaning of words in Chinese in such a way that losing the consonants and vowels may not be as important if the tones are preserved. So it's very interesting to think about these phenomena in other languages. These then can be thought of kind of as the example of, in the auditory domain, of what in the visual domain are called Rorschachs. Now, I hope you haven't put down your pen. Write down what you see here. These are called Rorschach blots. Some of you may see, well, let's hear some volunteers. Hey, what? A mouth. Anyone else? I I see actually two things dancing as well. Someone else. Okay. So now what do you think is on her mind? No. But that's what I contend goes on in auditory perception all the time. These slips of the air in the auditory domain are the same thing as these Rorschach blots. And so what we want to understand is the deductions that, and groupings. What's really interesting here are the groupings that people have made. How do you group one of those things versus another? And that's like the word boundaries. You hear the sky. How do you group that into two units? Do you put the S here or here? Do you put the center there with the bears or as part of the you know, face? How you group these elements, sometimes called part of what's called Gestalt approaches to psychology, is an aspect of understanding these slips of the air. Now, again, I said we sometimes don't disambiguate towards what's more frequent, but we may disambiguate towards what's more plausible for us. What's the difference between frequent and plausible? Well, frequent can be measured by looking at Google. How many hits do you have for this versus that? But plausible may involve a particular person's experience and the context of a conversation. So let me share with you my first slip of the ear ever. It went ev- I remember sitting in my mom's car and hearing the song that went every time you go away you take a piece of me with you and what did i hear well uh, tell me what you hear every
0: time you go away yeah.
1: take a piece of me with you. i heard piece of meat <laughs> think about the ingredients here long trip Not sure where the food source is going to be, (laughs) right? Pack some things along. American English syllable final T, meat, can be pronounced as a glottal stop. I take a piece of meat. That could be meat or me. That's phonetically ambiguous. In terms of what are called collocational frequencies, piece and meat might occur next to each other more often than piece of me. Piece of me is very abstract. And in the conceptual playground of a six-year-old, Piece of meat is much more likely, but this is a case where the phonetic symbol was a Rorschach blot. I could have seen, my ears could have seen in that whatever I wanted, and I went for, you know, what was more likely and plausible for me at the time. Okay, so one of the things that I think is a mystery here, uh, that's really fascinating, is when we have a tie, why do we actually choose one or the other? Yeah, let's look at these illusions again. You know, how come your brain doesn't say, wait a minute, I'm getting two conflicting messages, I don't see anything there. Sorry, does not compute, right? This is another one, the old woman and the young woman illusion. Many of you have probably seen this. Your eyes might be able to flip back and forth between seeing a young woman and an older woman. That neckline there is the crucial piece that makes the rest change, or mouth, right? And uh, that... You know, but why don't we say, wait a minute, I, I, I'm getting two conflicting messages, let me not decide between them. That I think is fascinating. Why is it that when children are acquiring language, they don't say, you know what, mommy, I, I didn't quite get that third word in the sentence, repeat the whole thing. We persistently go with, we try to make sense of things all the time. You may know, if you've tried to learn a language in an immersion context, that the only way to succeed is not by hanging on to every individual word, but trying to make sense of the whole stream, not getting caught up with something that your system fails to process because it's ambiguous or unknown. When we hear a proper name in a slip of the ear conversation and we end up hearing something else, that's because we have said, wait a minute, that was a proper name that I don't know. We don't do that. We sort of persistently try to make sense and impose an interpretation. And I think in adulthood, this reflects a survival skill that's carried over into adulthood, a survival skill in language acquisition. How are you ever gonna learn a language if you get caught up with words you don't know? But this is vestigially carried over to adulthood. Same thing here. If your visual system was always, well, I can't tell if that's a tiger or a uh, two bears dancing. Let me stay here for a moment while my visual system figures it out. So it is a sort of survival strategy to make a decision on the basis of incomplete information, even when it may be ambiguous. And that plays a role in our auditory system as well. Now, these small accretions of these kind of repetitive changes over time lead to sounds changing, and after all, words changing. One of the ways that languages change over time is by these mutations. I say she's adopted, you hear she's a doctor. That, if you like, is a mutation in the conversation. And these mutations that occur over time, just like in biology, can be consistent and recurrent in such a case that they become the norm. Enough people mishear something the same way over time that the language changes. Enough people misheard Latin octo as otto over time that, as we say, today's errors are tomorrow's rules. Errors that enough people made today consistently and repetitively become the norm. And so many words in the history of English have changed precisely this way. Some of you may know that the word, you know, kitchen kitchen, clothing used to be called an apron, and now it's an apron. Why? Well, that was a white space, Miss Parson. Same with orange. That was an orange. Think of Spanish naranja. Now it's an orange. That ambiguity of whether to parse an apron as an apron or an apron, if enough people mishear it the same way over time, that consistent misparsing, that consistent error, if you like, becomes the norm for tomorrow. And so, slips of the ear of the type we're studying are fascinating from the point of view of sound change because they're looking at sound change in progress. We can see do the individual mishearings that occur over time lead. Two, the kind of large scale changes that we know are responsible for the differences between, for example, Latin and Italian, or Old English and Modern English. So, in a certain sense, this is a bit like Chinese whispers. Some of you may know the game Chinese Whispers, also called telephone, whereby one person whispers something to another and another whispers to the next. And the, the world record for this actually is a. Las Vegas game of 614 people iterating Chinese whispers, where one, at the beginning, whispered, Mac King is a comedy magic genius, and the last person, finally, when they whispered it around, was, Macaroni Cantaloupe knows the future. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. But we can think of language change as like this. What's interesting here is what hasn't changed. The overall number of syllables overall really hasn't changed. Mac King's comedy magic genius, Macaroni Cantaloupe knows the future. The overall length, the number of syllables hasn't changed, and you may notice that the first syllable is the one that's most robust. These are some of the type of phenomena that happen over time on much larger scales as well. So we can think really of slips of the year as the sort of input to a real game of Chinese whispers that we're all playing as languages change over time. Well, the upshot of this is that new words can be born in precisely this way, and I'd like to return to the title of my talk and point out to you that many of the cases of slips of the ear occur in these routinized and sort of rote learned things like songs in church and national anthems. And one of the most common ones in the United States occurs with the phrase "By the dawn's early light." Oh, say can Well, if enough people mishear that, after all, dawn's early light, since when does dawn possess things? That's an odd construction. I have a much better idea for that. We've got the adjective crepuscular, which means pertaining to sunset. Why not dawn's early, which means pertaining to sunrise? Makes a lot more sense to me. That's how new words can be born, by the dawn's early light. Well, I think we're almost out of time, but I hope that this is not the end of our conversation and that you can all contribute your own experiences through a site we've developed now. This is just part of Twitter, and actually this doesn't work very well for most of you, but it works great in American English. The hashtag we have is, oh, my dear, which sounds like, oh, my dear, if you speak a flapping dialect of English. Again, this is sort of will lead to slips of the eye, depending on what you're familiar with. So please contribute your own slips of the ear, whether they be from songs or conversation in a format somewhat like this, A said this, and B heard this, and put in the hashtag, and put in the context if you want, and you too can be contributing to the study of all of these phenomena. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you, Andrew, for a very interesting and engaging lecture. We do have a few minutes for questions, so if you do have any, please raise your hand and please wait for the microphone to reach you because it is um, being broadcast online and people won't be able to hear you. There's one down the front here right in the middle. So if you could just wait for the microphone so people can on- online can hear you.
1: Here it comes. <laughs>
0: Sorry, I just want to ask if you have an alternative to Twitter.
1: Could I just email you? Yes, yes. Please send your emails as of one hour from now to ohmiteear at gmail.com. All right. dot com. Yeah. ohmiteear at, e- ma- at gmail.com. Many of the few variants of that address, actually, just in case. Can I just... Sorry, can I just make one more point? I mean, uh, the older members of this audience might not want to use Twitter, um, but also, it's, um, is it a degeneration of the brain because, I mean, I've developed this over the last few years, or is it just, you know, a continuing thing? I think that's, a, that's an excellent question. There are two phenomena that are, that, are, that are at play there in a certain sense with age. One is the, is the fact that we all have decay in the higher frequencies of our hearing. I don't know how much rock music you used to listen to, but I mean, things like sa, fa, and fa are the first to go, and those are very important in English. And so a lot, and as you know, there's this kind of domino effect. If you mishear a sound here, you have to re-bracket the whole word. So I'd say that's one role that, that to a certain extent, changes with age. And another is we often in production sometimes find that as people get older, they have trouble with finding a certain word, a tip of the tongue, it's on the tip of my tongue. That can happen in perception as well. That's really a two-way street. So that's what I think might be at play there. And, yeah, we look forward to hearing more about your experiences.
0: Thanks. There's one right there in the back. Hi, thanks. Um, Quick question about the examples of the songs. Some people don't hear these slips. The Jimi Hendrix example I've never heard myself, whereas others do. Is there a reason for that?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think that's very much like the rabbit duck illusion. There's not really a way to know who in this room would see rabbits and who versus ducks, right? That's that, which one you would see first, right? So I think that that's exactly the case. These are ambiguous sounds, and we can resolve them one way or the other. And you may simply have never resolved them that way. And all of the factors we've talked about, like frequency, plausibility, expectations, your native language background and dialect background may be playing a role. That's why it's a complex problem.
0: There's one on the front on the left there. Do you know if bilinguals um, have been? more slips or that's been studied at
1: all? We've, I mean, from the anecdotal evidence that we have, there seems to be quite a bit. There seems to be quite a bit. And that's where top-down perception could come in because sometimes you're not even sure what language you're hearing first. Okay, so you make more. Oh, yeah, I would think.
0: Okay, we're back over
1: here. I mean, there are a lot of other great advantages to being bilingual. (laughs) Hi. Uh,
0: Do you suspect that this occurs more in certain languages than others?
1: Uh, That's one of the things that we want to study more. As I say, this has really been focused to a great extent on English, and that's one of the reasons we're broadening to Chinese. German's been looked at as a little uh, as well. So that's a a fascinating question. I don't have any sort of predictions before looking at things. But you might imagine that certain types of ambiguity are more common depending on words tend to be monosyllabic more often. That could lead to variability in word size, whether languages always have three-syllable words or always one, or if they're variable, then the white space may change in that way.
0: I think we've got time for one last question up here.
1: I'm just wondering what you're going to do when you've found out all the answers. What was the clinical significance to knowing about this stuff? Well, one of the things we hope to do on Twitter with, with our site is, is to retweet them and sort of choose a favorite of the weeks just, you know, for people to contribute more and, and so forth. But the individual studies are a lot like the things that, that I told you about some of the specifics, looking at specific consonants, looking at specific effects of stress, looking at the effects of frequency. I mean, trying to come up with a sort of predictive model of when these are going to happen based on understanding all of the different pieces.
0: Okay, well, I want to thank you all for coming. Thank you for your questions. And thanks most of all to Professor Andrew Nevin.